0: There is a passage in John 7 and in Luke 2 that seemed to imply that Jesus and his disciples weren't very educated nothing could be further from the truth. The educational system in Jesus's day was astounding, and that is the content for what we're going to be digging into for this episode, part two, Rabbis and Disciples. And hey, if you're watching this on YouTube and you find this teaching to be helpful, like the video, subscribe to our channel, and share with someone you think could benefit as well. All right, buckle up. Here we go. Let's dive into this episode. Hello everyone, I'm Brad Gray, and welcome to The Teaching Series podcast. I've learned that most of us have never been taught how to engage the Bible the way it was intended in its original context, and we are missing out on so much. I created The Teaching Series, which is a weekly video series that explores some aspect of the Bible in its original context, and then talks through how we can apply it well to our own context. This podcast is the audio version of those highly visual video teachings, which can be found at walkingthetext.com. Please feel free to rate and review this podcast. Thank you so much for listening and let's jump into the episode. I am so excited for this episode, and I just got to give you all a heads up. This one is jam-packed, but I couldn't find a way to break it up any more than this. And so let me begin by using this quote from Shmuel Safrai and Menahem Stern, who said this about the Torah study. says, Torah study was a remarkable feature in Jewish life at the time of the Second Temple and during the period following it. It was not restricted to the formal setting of schools and synagogue, nor to sages only, but became an integral part of ordinary Jewish life. The Torah was studied at all possible times, even if only a little at a time. The sound of Torah learning issuing from houses at night was a common phenomenon. When people assembled for a joyous occasion, such as circumcision or a wedding, a group might withdraw to engage in study of the law. Torah was everything to the religious Jews in Jesus' day. And because the Torah, God's word, was central to everything, they built a phenomenal educational system around it. In fact, notice what Josephus says about the education of children in his first century work against Apion. He writes this, Above all, we pride ourselves on the education of our children and regard as the most essential task in life the observance of the our laws and of the pious practices based thereupon, which we have inherited. And so because Torah was central, education was huge, they built a foundational and fantastic educational system in Jesus' day. Now, let me just make a quick note. Um, what I am going to present to you in this episode, nobody left a detailed description of what the educational system looked like in Jesus's day. What I am providing to you is the best composite picture we have based on the available evidence. And I'm going to be leaning heavily on the work of Shmuel Safrai, who is one of the most brilliant minds we had in the 20th century. I mean, this dude was ordained at the age of 20. Um, He was Jewish. He was absolutely brilliant. In fact, I had one of his friends tell me not long ago that Shmuel had a photographic memory. He knew the entire Hebrew scriptures, which Christians unfortunately call the Old Testament, by heart, as well as knew Jewish literature forwards and backwards like the Babylonian Talmud. And so Shmuel has this amazing ability or had this amazing ability to pull all the pieces together and go, here's what we think the first century world looked like from an educational perspective. And one of our anchoring passages actually comes from the Mishnah, which we talked about in part one compiled in roughly 200 A.D., but reflected a time period earlier than that, so during the time of Jesus and beyond. And these are kind of like some anchoring ages and what Jewish boys were studying, because this is referring specifically to boys here, at least at the time when this was compiled in roughly 200 A.D. So here's what it reads. This is at five years of age, one is ready for the study of written Torah. At 10 years of age for the study of oral Torah... At 13 for Bar Mitzvah, which is the coming of age ceremony. At 15 for the study of Halachot, which are the rabbinic legal decisions. At 18 for marriage. At 20 for pursuing a vocation. At 30 for entering one's full vigor. Now this is for Jewish boys. Yes, they got married at the age of 18 roughly. Girls probably somewhere 13 years old or so. So ladies, just stop for a moment and think about this. You could have been a grandmother at 26. I know, scary as all get out. So this is what it was, but before they came into school education at the age of five, everything began in the home. And notice what William Barclay writes about this importance. He says, However high the Jewish ideal of the school, the fact remains that to the Jew, the real center of education is the home. To the Jew, education is not education in any kind of academic or technical knowledge. It is education in holiness. Oh, that's so great. So, everything begins in the home. So, this is from birth to about five years old. The parents are teaching their kids Shema. It's probably the first thing on their lips Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Achad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Then they would also be introducing to their kids the major biblical stories, just like you have probably done or how you grew up in your household. David and Goliath, Daniel and the lion's den, Noah and the flood, Abraham and Sarah, Jacob and Esau, all of these amazing stories. And then once they get to about the age of five, now they would start their formal education, which would take place at the synagogue. Now, this is an aerial photo of Capernaum. This is the synagogue. It sat in the center of the town. Here's what that looks like. The synagogue from Jesus's day is probably right underneath it, the basalt ruins Um, are underneath this. This comes from a little bit later on. But here's an artist's rendering of what a synagogue looked like from the time of Jesus, which was found at Gamla, just off the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee. And so, you can see here the Torah scrolls, that's the Torah closet, but typically at a synagogue, there is a hall connected to the main part of the synagogue. So, here in Gamla, it's actually in the back here. At Capernaum, it's along this side. At Korazin, it's along this side. And if there wasn't a hall connected to the synagogue, then there was some structure near the synagogue where students would meet. Now, there's a really cool rabbinic tradition of what happened on the very first day of school. So the child would be walked to the hall connected to the synagogue and they would be handed a slate and the slate wasn't blank. In fact, it had the Hebrew alphabet here, are just four of the letters, but it had all of the characters of the Hebrew alphabet. It had Leviticus one, Deuteronomy 33.4. You can read those on your own time. But the main thing written on the slate were these words, the law will be my calling. And once the student was handed this, it was then covered in honey, and then the student would lick the honey off the slate as a visceral experience about how God's words are as sweet on the tongue as honey. It connects to a passage in Ezekiel 3.3 and some other passages in the Hebrew Scriptures that talk about God's words being like honey. What a cool way to start your education, right? And so then they would jump into their education. Now, we're going to talk more about the girls here in just a little bit. But with the boys in particular, David Biven writes this about the whole educational system. He says, Teachers of the Torah were the most esteemed, most respected in Jewish society. But the goal of every child was to become a sage, a recognized teacher of the Torah in society. And the competition was extreme. So we've got three levels of education. And so here's level one. It's called Beit Sefer. This is what the honey experience would have happened on day one of Beit Sefer. Beit means house of, Sefer means scroll or book. It means house of the book or the scroll talking about the written Torah. This was from age five to ten. It encompassed boys and girls, at least that's what many scholars believe. Some scholars believe it was for boys only, but many believe that this first level of education, which is like elementary school, if you will, that girls would be part of this as well because there was just some basic foundational knowledge that they wanted all Jewish boys and girls to have about God's word. So this was taught by a Torah teacher, a wicked smart teacher of the Torah, And the focus was on the written Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, primarily. But there are also a little bit in the Psalms that they would have dipped into as well, because as William Barclay Barclay lays out in Educational Ideals in the Ancient World, there was some baseline education that they wanted everybody to have. So that included the Shema, which they said every evening and every morning, and that comprised three different passages, One from Deuteronomy 6, Deuteronomy 11, and the other from Numbers 15. The Hallel, which are Psalms 113 to 118. So that's where we're dipping out of the first five books of the Bible. But then the creation story, Genesis 1 through 5 in particular... But then also Leviticus 1 through 8, the Levitical law, because this is what made up their constitutional code of law, which governed the Jewish people. In fact, uh, according to the evidence, it actually began, their education of Beit Sefer began with Leviticus. Uh, Marvin Wilson, in his brilliant book, Our Father Abraham, writes this. He says, it was customary to begin biblical study with the book of Leviticus, the Midrash Rabbah states that children begin with Leviticus rather than Genesis because, quote, young children are pure and the sacrifices are pure. So let the pure come and engage in the study of the pure, end of quote. And this is from Leviticus Rabbah 7.3. And so you see how they're beginning with the book of Leviticus. They're also learning the skill of memorization. Friends, they did not have Bibles in the first century world of the Hebrew Scriptures. Um, if a home had some form of wealth, then they probably had a scroll, a single scroll. But all of the works of, of the prophets from beforehand, the books of the Bible, were in the synagogue. That's where you got to engage them. And if you wanted to hide God's word in your heart in order to take it with you, it was through memorization. And so you learned how to memorize. Now, At the end of Beit Sefer, the girls were done. They're going to be married probably in the next three years or so. So they're learning all of the trades of being at home, cooking, cleaning, all of that good stuff. The boys as well are learning a trade because if at any point in time they're not cutting it, they would just jump in to the family trade the best of the best boys from Beit Sefer would move on to level two, which is called Beit Talmud. Now, another quick note here for those of you who have heard me speak on this before at a conference or at a church, um, or you've been with me to Israel, I'm adding in this now. So you will not have heard me talk about Beit Talmud before. Many scholars connect Beit Talmud and Beit Midrash, which is level three, as one unit. Um, Other people split it up, and it was probably different in different areas. I've always grouped them together, but looking through surprise evidence and some other pieces as well, I feel like it's helpful just to identify this as a second level even though it may have been connected as, you know, one level between level 2 and level 3 united together. We just don't know. Again, nobody left a detailed description, but this does make a lot of sense. Um, in level two being Beit Talmud, it means house of learning or house of instruction. Probably somewhere, um, you know, age 10 to about 13, boys only, again, taught by a Torah teacher. And then you engaged and memorized the rest of scripture. So you're beyond the first five books of the Bible. You're learning the rest of the text and in many cases, you are memorizing as much as you possibly can. And boys who finished Beit Talmud would have had an incredible working knowledge of all the scriptures. And even some of them would have had these scriptures committed to memory. I know that's really hard to get our minds around here in the 21st century world, but this is what they put all of their energy into. They learned and memorized God's word. They didn't do movie lines. They didn't do lyrics from songs. Their songs were the Psalms, which was also the very words of God. And so they engaged and memorized the rest of scripture. And the big thing that was added in Beit Talmud was that they began learning the oral Torah, which we talked about in part one. There is the Mikra, the written Torah. There's also Mishnah, the oral Torah. This is what they're beginning to learn here in Beit Talmud. Now, let me go back to that memorization thing for a bit, because David Biven says something really helpful in his book, New Light on the Difficult Words of Jesus. He says this, Memorization of written Torah and of the oral Torah was such a large part of Jewish education that most of them had large portions of the scriptures and oral Torah firmly committed to memory. From quite early in the second temple period, one could hardly find a little boy in the street who didn't know the scriptures. According to Jerome, who lived from AD 342 to 420, who lived in Bethlehem and learned Hebrew from local Jewish residents in order to translate the scriptures into Latin, this eventually became known as the Latin Vulgate, quote unquote this, there doesn't exist any Jewish child who doesn't know by heart the history from Adam to Zerubbabel, i.e. from the beginning to the end of the Bible, end of quote. Perhaps this was a bit of an exaggeration, David Bivin goes on to say, on Jerome's part, but in most cases his reports have proved reliable. They know their scriptures forwards and backwards. And so in addition to beginning the learning, the oral Torah, they're also learning the art of good questions. Now, this is so cool because in Judaism, and it's been like this for the last 2000 years, is that the mark of a student is not in the answers they give. It's in the questions they ask. And one of the things that you see in rabbinical debates is that when somebody asks a question, you don't respond with an answer. You respond to their question with a question. And typically the answer to that initial question is in the question you are asking back. I know it sounds very confusing, but essentially it's this idea. Somebody asks you a question, and when you ask your question in response, you're basically saying, I understand the question you've asked, and I'm answering it in the question I'm asking back to you so that we can keep the discussion going. In fact, you see this all the time with Jesus. Jesus gets asked a question. What does he do? He responds with a question. I remember the late Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who just passed away on November 7th. It was just really, really sad news. But he said that whenever he came home from school, his mother never asked him, what did you learn in school today? She always would ask him this, did you ask any good questions? Isn't that great? And he went on to say, she knew that if I was asking good questions, I was learning everything that I needed to learn. In fact, I was recently listening to one of my friends talk about how he has a rabbi friend, and whenever he asks his rabbi friend a question, that rabbi always responds with a question. And my friend said, I just got so annoyed that I asked my rabbi friend one day, hey, how come every time I ask a question, you respond with a question? And his rabbi friend responded with, well, why not? Right? That's another question. So great. In fact, do you remember this story? Luke two forty two. when he, Jesus, was 12 years old. Oh, that's an interesting age. Uh, they went up to the festival according to the custom. Remember this story? Mary and Joseph lose the son of God. How do you account for that one, right? They're in a big caravan and they think, you know, cousin Eddie or, you know, uncle Fred or somebody has Jesus and they don't. And all of a sudden they realize he's in the temple courts because after three days they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them, ah, questions, of course. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his Answers, which also constitutes what? Questions. Jesus has learned the art of asking good questions. Now, only the best of the best boys go on to the third level, which is Beit Midrash. It means house of study. It's age 13 to 15, again, boys only, plus anyone in the community. So the idea was, is that Judaism always wanted education to be central to the people. And so even if, you know, there wasn't a formal synagogue service going on on Shabbat, you could go to the synagogue and the Beit Midrash was there where you would have teachers teaching the people scriptures and other things connected to rabbinical law and whatnot, Most likely, they had a segment stationed off for a teacher to work with the best of the best boys who have made it into Beit Midrash. So, taught by a Torah teacher, you engage the scriptures, all of the scriptures, but then you also discussed rabbinical legal decisions. In addition to that, you learned how to debate with teachers, always a central feature of Jewish education. And then, Only the best of the best got to go on to try to become a disciple. Now, real quick, let me just kind of give you um, an analogy in order to help you to understand how hard it is to move above these levels of education. And I'm going to use this in the context of basketball. I love basketball. I have a basketball background is that in order to enter into Beit Sefer, it would be like the equivalent of making your middle school basketball team. Nearly everybody makes it. Maybe it's a little different where you're at, but typically everybody is part of that. Beit Talmud would be the equivalent of you are good enough to make your high school basketball team. To get into Beit Midrash, you are now a collegiate athlete, which only a small percentage of people ever make it to the collegiate level. But the next step in the whole process was to become a Talmud, being a Talmud, a disciple. And friends, that was the equivalent of being drafted in the NBA, to be an NBA draft pick. And here's how it worked. To become a Talmud, being a disciple, you you began roughly around the age of maybe 15, 16, 17. We don't know for certain. And it went on for an indefinite period of time. And what you did is you pursued a rabbi in order to study under. So the rabbi didn't seek you out. You sought the rabbi out. So to kind of switch analogies, it would be if you're trying to get a PhD, you go to a professor and say, will you take me on as your PhD student? And then in Jesus's day, if you're pursuing a rabbi and you say, hey, I want to be a disciple because nobody could just become a disciple. You had to make the cut. Then the rabbi would ask you all of these questions to figure out, could you become just like me? Because as we'll talk in our next episode, becoming a disciple was to become like your rabbi. And we'll talk about that in more detail. And it wasn't just a rabbi that you pursued. It was one with authority. Okay. Again, we'll come back to this in a future episode. The focus was on the Torah, it was on the oral Torah, the written Torah, but also on the rabbi's yoke, which was their interpretation methods and the way that they interpreted the scriptures. Some of you are going, oh, that sounds like Matthew 11 when Jesus is talking about his yoke. And the idea was becoming just like the rabbi. It was a father-son relationship. Again, we'll talk about this more in our next episode. And essentially, at approximately at the age of 30, one could become a rabbi. So if you've been a disciple through this time and you've made it, you would probably become a rabbi roughly around the age of 30. Now, one quick story to end. I told you this was a packed episode, but I want to leave you with something to think about as a way of not just this being really great, helpful information, but what does this mean for us today? You'll remember the story that Jesus is walking along the Sea of Galilee one day. And as Matthew records this in Matthew 4, as Jesus walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And then it goes on. As he went on from there, he saw two other brothers, James son of Zebedee and his brother John in the boat with their father Zebedee, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Has it ever dawned on you that it's just weird that Jesus would simply say, hey, follow me. And they would drop everything to follow him. Well, after all that we have learned today, I hope this makes a ton of sense because when Jesus goes and says, follow me, this is what you would say to invite someone to be a disciple of yours. And if, you know, Peter and Andrew and James and John are fishing, what does that tell you? They're not in someone's Talmudim, their discipleship group, which means they didn't make the cut. Now, they're not idiots. They're not stupid. Jesus didn't just haphazardly choose disciples. But there's something in this that I think is so amazing is that when Jesus said, follow me, he went to these guys and said, I want you to be my disciple. I want you to walk after me. I want to train you as my disciple. Again, they're not a part of anybody's discipleship group. And if David Biven is correct, and every young Jewish boy wanted to become a sage, then the moment Jesus said, follow me, they would have understood exactly what Jesus was saying. They drop everything and they go after Jesus because they have been accepted as a disciple into someone's Talmudim discipleship group. And I love this because Jesus pursued them. That was not the norm. You went to a rabbi, they discerned at that point whether you were good enough to be in their group. Jesus went to his disciples and said, I want you to follow me. And friends, I believe that's the same invitation that Jesus has given to all of us as well, is to walk after him, to learn from him, to understand what it means to follow as a disciple followed a rabbi in the first century world. And we're going to unpack that in the next episode. But just for now, understand Jesus is the kind of person, Jesus is the kind of rabbi who pursues people and invites them to follow after him. How cool is that? Well, friends, there you go. Part two, another full episode. I hope this is helpful to you. If you're watching this on YouTube, go to Walking the Text, and underneath this video, there's all of the additional sources that will give you more information if you want to go deeper. If you're obviously watching this at Walking the Text, just go down to the bottom of the page. And for those of you who are listening podcast-wise, thanks so much for listening. Friends, thanks so much for being part of this. May you walk out the text well in your life.